Welcome to the Neuropedic Sports Rehab Podcast. I'm your host, Ramez Antoon, but please call me Mez. I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach. And in this show, we talk about the continuum of clinical practice to getting back to training in the gym. We focus on sustainable performance and longevity. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy our show. Before we start, if you're a sports PT interested in a virtual mentorship, make sure you stick around for after the episode. We have more details about our 12-week mentorship program that we've been getting awesome feedback from our students. Also, if you like to consume content by reading, we drop a weekly newsletter every Friday morning with free sports rehab and fitness content. So if you're interested, make sure you check out the episode description where we have a link to sign up for our weekly newsletter. All right, without further delay, let's get into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Neuropedics Sports Rehab Podcast. Today's topic of conversation comes from one of my best friends, Nate Kavicki, out in San Diego, California. Nate's an athletic performance coach, and he wants me to talk about flexibility, mobility, and its relationship to performance. Now, this is a really big topic because as Nate describes, this is a very cloudy topic in the industry these days, especially in athletic development. So let me see if I can give you all some concepts to work around that are actionable. So when we talk, when we look at performance, let's first define the goal. Are we talking about power, strength, endurance? What aspect of performance are we talking about? And then we can talk about how mobility relates to it. Let's take, for example, we want to improve someone's ability to deadlift. Their, one of their personal goals is to deadlift more weight. I'm immediately interested in the mobility of the posterior chain in that regard. But before we go down that rabbit hole, let's define mobility versus flexibility. Because I think many people will talk about these terms and have their own working definition for them. For example, there are two systems out there that I consider the gold standard for mobility enhancement. One is the functional range conditioning, or even more macro, the functional range systems developed by Dr. Andreo Spina. And the other would be the combination of the FMS and the SFMA developed by Gray Cook. Both of these systems have a very different definition for mobility. So in the FRC, functional range conditioning system, Mobility is defined as the active of the ability to actively control your range of motion. And Andreo Spina differentiates flexibility and mobility by saying mobility is the control of the range you have and flexibility is the passive demonstration of range of motion. So in that system, we, they talk about flexibility as being useless unless you have mobility. You can actually control it. Now in the Functional movement systems, mobility is defined as the passive ability for us to move a joint or tissue. And they define motor control as the ability to control your mobility. So 
it's really important that when you're listening to people in the industry talk about mobility, really understanding what are how are they defining mobility? Are they defining mobility as just passive movement? Or are they defining mobility as the ability to control movement? Regardless of the definition that we choose, the end goal of quote-unquote mobility training in either system is to be able to control your range of motion. The ability to minimize the discrepancy between passive range and the active range so that the central nervous system can demonstrate control of what you have available to you. So with that said, when we go back to the deadlift and helping somebody improve their deadlift strength, and we talk about the mobility of the posterior chain, we're not just going to be stretching hamstrings passively. We're going to be doing quite a bit of isometric training in progressively longer ranges of the posterior chain And depending on how the athlete presents, if they really do demonstrate stiffness where they are not getting to 70 degrees of an active straight leg raise, even with a passive attempt, then we might be doing quite a bit of static stretching. Yes, I mean relaxing into a very mild sensation of a stretch for up to two minutes, then doing isometric strength training in those ranges of motion to demonstrate to the central nervous system that we have active control of this range. Now, with that said, let's talk a little bit about programming and timing. Because if I have an athlete who is working towards improving the strength of their deadlift, I will never, yes, and I'm saying never, have an athlete do a two-minute passive hold and then ramp up isometric in progressive angles and then jump into deadlifting with the same volume and the same loads that they were doing prior to this mobility prescription. So I think it's really important to, just like when we program anything else, if we're programming strength and power versus endurance and aerobic capacity, you can't try to improve multiple physical qualities at the same time. And that is a discussion we need to have with our athletes. If we're truly going to go after mobility and the long-term plan is to improve the deadlift, well, then we might do six to eight weeks of a mobility-focused training regimen. And that that does not just mean passive stretching. It means really focusing in on isometric training with progressive angles and then superimposing maybe single leg deadlifts or variations of deadlifts within their available range of motion, but like half the volume that they were doing before or even half the loads so that you are grooving the pattern of a hip hinge and putting the demand of both mobility and stability through the system while we're developing mobility for that individual athlete. I hope that helps in terms of um, how I would program mobility for a strength athlete who wants to do a deadlift. And allow me to change the example here now and discuss, let's say we're trying to develop power and speed in a particular athlete. 
What I found really interesting is when you dive into the science of connective tissue and fascia, which Dr. Andrea Spina and Thomas Myers and several other people in the industry have brought to my attention, that connective tissue and fascia actually have quite a bit of contractile proteins within them. So we're no longer looking at this tissue as a passive inert tissue. These, this tissue actually has the capacity to contract. It's a continuation of um, the proteins within the muscle. Anyways, when we, if we bring that back to developing speed and power in an athlete and how that relates to mobility, let's bring it back to the equation force equals mass times acceleration. Now I'm gonna trickle in some of my martial arts training into this discussion. If we want to optimize force and we keep mass constant, well, then we have to cultivate the skill of acceleration. How do we do that? Well, in martial arts and what Bruce Lee was very adamant about in terms of speed development is if you want to be quick, you have to know how to relax and get tense very quickly and transition between relaxation and tension. That's number one. Number two, I want you to think of a slingshot. If you can coil your tissue and elongate it, you can what we call load and then explode. So coiling tissue and using the, elast the elastic properties of our connective tissue like a coiled spring, while we integrate our ability to go from complete relaxation to tension, we can explode and develop quickness. But if we're lacking mobility, Let's say the ankle joint is locked up and we can't get a competent level of dorsiflexion in the ankle. Well, then propulsion is going to be compromised. So if we can't coil the ankle, we can't coil the slingshot, we can't pull that sling back any further, well, then the pebble's only gonna go so far. The propulsions that we're gonna get is only gonna be so much. Our force production capability is only gonna be so much. So mobility relates to performance with respect to quickness, speed, agility in regards to being able to coil the springs of your joints, being able to coil the springs of your connective tissue and utilize that, which will also make the athlete more efficient. What's really interesting is when you dive into connective tissue and fascia and functional anatomy with that regard, we realize that we don't have to use as much quote unquote muscle tension if we learn how to depend on the elasticity and the coiling nature of our connective tissue that slings around the body. But I'm gonna bring this discussion back to the difference between functional range conditioning and the FMS system. One system is very focused on parts functional range conditioning. The other system, the FMS system, it starts with looking at mobility with respect, mobility and stability with respect to patterns. And then the SFMA, for example, will break down a pattern that isn't passing minimum effective ranges into its constituent parts. So we can have this perspective of either training a pattern or training a part and being able to take that either part or pattern mobility focus into programming for um, the athlete and whatever their particular goal is. So to go back to our two examples, 
deadlifting, improving strength within the deadlift, focusing on developing the posterior chain's ability to elongate and then contract. We can use a pattern-focused approach to develop that as we go from mobility training to deadlift training with respect to developing speed for an athlete who has a locked up ankle or a tight ankle. We focus on developing ankle mobility and then we may interject drills within their available range, for example, like a jump rope, so that they learn how to coil and utilize that new range of motion from an isometric standpoint, progressing to concentric eccentric work that might still be a local focus, and then getting into some type of pattern training where they learn how to do an agility ladder, get into some um, jump roping, but the volume is going to be very moderate and very modest. We're not we're not introducing the athlete to any type of fatigue when we are really focused on mo- developing the mobility there. And that ties in the programming and the timing aspect of things. So one of the, one of the key conversations I have with, with athletes that I'm rehabbing and really developing mobility in and focusing on mobility is making it very clear to them that as we gain access to more range of motion, that comes along with quite a bit of responsibility in terms of controlling that range of motion. So after you do your mobility drills, do not go and do anything that is going to load your central nervous system, going to fatigue you. You're not going into a game after doing these really strict mobility techniques because what can happen is when you have a discrepancy between your active and your passive range and you load the tissue in a range of motion that it doesn't quite have a lot of control in yet, the central nervous system can do something to protect you, aka spasm, and um, that's a really unfortunate event. And it's happened to me quite a few times in the past as I've been learning to develop my mobility coaching skills is you'll gain quite a bit of range of motion in one session with an athlete, whether it be from dry needling, a soft tissue technique, or even just foam rolling and doing some isometrics in conjunction with passive stretching. And we see this 20% increase in range of motion, for example. And then I don't have that conversation with that athlete. And that athlete leaves the clinic or leaves the gym and goes and, and does a five mile run, which isn't anything new for this particular person. They they do five miles all the time, but now they have all this new range of motion in their ankle that they don't have control of yet. And their ankle goes into a spasm or their calf goes into a spasm. So it's important to have these conversations and to set these expectations with our athletes when we're truly going after mobility changes. They have to understand that as we develop their mobility, they have to dial it back in terms of their volumes and loads of training. And if they are going to get into a game or into a practice to not do these aggressive mobility um, techniques and strategies 
prior to their performance. I hope that makes sense. Moving on, what really has helped me in the past take my brain from a parts mobility focus to a, what we call in the rehab world now, regional interdependence, or in other words, everything is connected, (laughs) Um, is the joint-by-joint approach. This was popularized by Mike Boyle and Gray Cook. And the joint-by-joint approach basically just says that the body is a stack of alternating joints that alternate between a mobility responsibility and a stability responsibility. A mobility, stability. Mobility, stability. And when the body's working well, the mobility, stability alternating pattern from the foot all the way up to the head allows for the body to demonstrate this slingshot analogy where we have stability in one joint and then mobility in the neighboring joint so that the slingshot analogy if i hold the sling stable i can effectively pull the pebble back further so in regards to the ankle and the knee for example if i have a a mobile ankle i'm going to have better luck at creating stability at the knee for example So the joint-by-joint approach helps me, in terms of programming, look at where we're trying to develop mobility and then asking myself, okay, well, how can I pair stability into the mix so that we can dance between mobility and stability? Let me use an example. Let's go up to the shoulder and relate it to the thoracic spine. So in the joint-by-joint approach, the thoracic spine ideally is mobile, So the scapular thoracic joint should be stable. The glenohumeral joint should be mobile. If that pattern switches and now I have a thoracic spine that is not mobile, the the scapular thoracic joint is going to have to give up its stability to make up for the thoracic spine's lack of mobility. So now the scapula is more moving more. And now the glenohumeral joint has to give up some of its mobility to make up for the scapular instability. So now I have a a tight thorax, a scapula that doesn't really know how to control itself, and then I have a glenohumeral joint that doesn't have as much wiggle. So when I'm programming this individual to try to develop shoulder mobility, I'll go all the way back to the thoracic spine and say, okay, well, I'm going to do something to create some mobility at the thoracic spine. Then I'm going to go to the scapula and teach some type of controlled mobility, whether that be static or dynamic. And then I'm going to go back to the thoracic spine, train mobility, then go back to the scapula, train stability, and I'm going to dance back and forth. And if I see that doing stability at the scapula improves my mobility in the thoracic spine and then mobility at the thoracic spine helps to improve the stability at the scapula well then now i know to dance between those two and not just perseverate on mobility at the t-spine so the joint by joint just gives me i think helps give us a 
more of a perspective on how to look at regional interdependence, talk to ourselves about where are we lacking mobility. We want to train that mobility, but where can we interject some stability to the neighboring joints to help us optimize mobility of where we're trying to go? I hope that made sense. I think using a visual for that type of conversation may be better in the future, but for, for whatever it's worth, that's how my brain tries to problem solve when I'm working with an athlete to improve their mobility in order to optimize their performance. I think that's all we got for today, guys. Those are some of the points that I just wanted to make in regards to flexibility, mobility, and its relationship to performance. So to highlight key takeaways, really make sure you understand how people are defining mobility before you get into the nuances of how they're dealing with it. Remember that the programming and the timing of mobility with relationship to higher level tasks is a really important conversation in, in terms of setting expectations of when to do mobility training, true mobility training, and when not to do mobility training. Keeping the joint by joint approach in our mind in terms of a cognitive filter to help us strategize where to insert stability to optimize regional interdependence. And then the last point was really looking at force equals mass times acceleration. That is the that is the golden equation for performance, in my opinion, is we want to optimize force, we can, we can increase mass, or we can increase acceleration if we really want to improve speed and quickness. Learning how to accelerate requires us to not only learn how to go from tension to relaxation back and forth quickly, but also be able to coil our tissue like a spring in order to use that elasticity of fascia and connective tissue to our advantage to improve efficiency in our skill or in our sport. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Have an awesome rest of your day. Before you go, if anything in this episode today confused you or if you have any questions about what I said in the episode, please feel free to email me at remez at neuropedicspt.com. I answer all my emails. I really want to help you get the most out of this content. So feel free to reach out. I am open to nerding out with any of you. Thanks again for listening. I want to let you know about our foundation's mentorship program. This is a 12-week program designed for orthopedic and sports physical therapists interested in better understanding how various motor control and neuromuscular rehab models can be integrated into any practice, making you a well-rounded therapist while improving outcomes. With the various motor control perspectives available to us today, oftentimes we can be left feeling confused, not knowing who to listen to and which course to take next. We know what it feels like to take a weekend course and feel like you have to choose between one approach or another, but it doesn't have to be that way. What if a certain depth of understanding in various models brought us some clarity, cognitive agility, and creativity into our clinical practice? That's our goal with this 12-week program. 
We'll dive deep into five of the foundational systems of motor control, like the reflex model and the dynamic systems model. We'll dissect each model's strengths and weaknesses to see how each model may complement one another through synergy. Here's what you'll get through this 12-week program. You'll get home study content, which will consist of PowerPoint audio lectures. You'll get one-on-one -on -one mentoring calls for an hour a week where we dissect practical case study examples from your current caseload so you can apply the content to your clients right away. We'll also have plenty of time for Q&A so you can get a deeper understanding of the home study material. Here's what you will not get from this program. We're not offering new techniques or fancy exercises, and we're not promoting new assessment or evaluation strategies. And rather than bashing other systems, we'll be taking a different approach towards motor control, an inside-out approach where we start with our why and our beliefs and values. If you're interested in learning more about this 12-week mentorship program, please email us at neuropedicspt at gmail.com. We're now offering free discovery calls so you can learn more about what we have to offer. And now, without further delay, let's dive into today's episode.